Well, thank you to Alex. That's a, a very challenging uh, paper to, to follow. Um, and I was resolving as I listened to it that maybe every Friday morning should begin with a Frank O'Hara poem. I think that would be a good, uh, a good resolution. But I hope that in a sense, and by sheer coincidence, I think some of the, the threads of what Alex was talking about will um, be things that I'm kind of picking up in, in my talk this morning as well. Um, I only realised when I, when I sat down to write this talk how deeply actually these issues cut with me in terms of my professional identity and kind of trajectory into the role that I now do um, at Bristol. Um, and to put this simply, if you, if you asked me the question, am I an academic or a practitioner, I could say yes, I'm definitely, I'm definitely something in that spectrum, but I'd find it quite difficult to identify um, kind of which of those, uh, certainly historically, has been accurate as describing the work that I do. Um, I've been at Bristol for nearly 12 years. I was appointed to a job that was a kind of legacy of the Department of Extramural Studies or Continuing Education, which had closed in the late 1990s. So my predecessor had spent most of her career there and then moved over to the English Department when that department closed. And so I was appointed to a role um, which was designated academic-related, um, which a colleague of mine joked at the time was a bit like being called lower middle class. It's kind of, you're, you're not really middle class, but you're not really working class either. And it had that kind of sense, I think, that you weren't, you weren't part of professional services in that sense, but you weren't an academic. And I've gradually, um, a bit like Jacqueline, migrated sort of more onto a, um, a, a conventional academic trajectory. Um, and, I mean, in the 12 years that I've been at Bristol, I've been through eight different job titles, which you can see on, on the screen. And you can see there that that encompasses all sorts of kind of shifts in terminology in the sector, actually, as well as um, kind of things that were happening locally on, on the ground at, at Bristol. Um, and I've been involved in setting up two programmes while I've been at Bristol, a, a part-time degree in the English department, which I'm going to talk a little bit about, and a foundation year in the wider Faculty of Arts. Um, and these are, again, sort of in a sense legacies of that old extramural tradition. Um, but it's given me that kind of sense, I think, of being in an English department without ever being feeling quite that I was doing the same work as the colleagues around me. Um, in some sense, research was never the centre of what I was doing, for example. Um, but at the same time, never actually quite being in the same channels as some of the practitioners within my institution working on widening participation, whose work was very geared towards expertise in outreach and admissions, and, and therefore in a sense quite different in nature, but also just situated geographically differently in the institution and, and differently in hierarchies and all those kind of things. Um, and I think that's always given me a, a sense, which I'm using to frame this paper, of, of not necessarily calling things by the same names as other people. And that's um, where I sort of wanted to start today. Um, when, I, when I first heard about this event, I kept, one of those things that sort of came unbidden, I kept thinking about this quotation from George Eliot's novel Middlemarch. Um, any of you who've read that novel may remember that there, there's a heroine, Dorothea, she marries a much older man called Casabon who then dies. Um, and basically she's left in this big house on her own and she gets all this kind of unsolicited advice from various of her neighbours, uh, one of whom, called Mrs Cadwallader, uh, says to her, and this is at the top here, you will certainly go mad in that house alone, my dear, you will see visions. 
we've all got to exert ourselves a little to keep sane and call things by the same names as other people call them. And Dorothea replies, I never did call, I never called everything by the same name that all the people about me did. What's it mean to call things by a different name to the people about you? Why should the name of things matter so much to our participation in them and to our sanity? And to what extent is this utopian thinking or mere arrogance in Dorothea to think that she can kind of hold out against the way others see and define the world? And her, her sort of sense at the bottom here that, that the world often has to come around from its opinion, as it were, that things can change and that therefore not being part of uh, what we might now think of as the kind of group think can be an advantage sometimes if it means you're not locked into something that might then fall apart. Um, I'm going to come back a little bit to, to my role later on, but one of the things I wanted to think about a little bit today is how we might extend um, that question about the relationship between academics and practitioners or that question about which um, which name we give things to students. Are students academics or practitioners? Um, and in terms of the work that we're thinking about today, do students have a role in widening participation? And is that role primarily to do with their own participation? Or does it involve them engaging with others, including those not immediately or um, at that present moment inside a university? I also think there's a side issue there for me about the question of kind of who gets to be a student. Um, and um, I mean, we're talking a little bit today about the, the barriers between different kinds of professional identity within an institution and the kind of inequalities that Penny was flagging up about our own hierarchies within an institution. It seems to me that that cuts much deeper, actually. It, it sort of made me laugh a lot lately that the, the government is talking so much about the question of what employers want. And we as universities then parrot that and say, we must know what employers want. And actually what we don't talk about is the fact that we are an employer. You know, that seems to me that that should be the starting point of thinking about what employers want. And that as an employer, we have a, a particularly diverse set of staff but we're not very good at creating the sort of learning culture that allows people to move between different sort of categories within that. So it's actually sort of, within a lot of institutions, I think, very difficult to move from, say, being on the catering staff to being an undergraduate student, or move from running a hall of residence to doing a PhD, or whatever these kind of things are. And so I think that sense of these, these categories being, in some sense, slightly too fixed, actually relates to lots of larger issues about participation as well. Um, the first programme that I was involved in setting up at Bristol um, is a part-time BA in English Literature and Community Engagement. It started in 2008 and was created, I should say, at great speed, um, largely in the space of six months, in response to the funding crisis that some of you may remember as the ELQ crisis for a lot of adult education provision in universities. Um, the literary content of the degree reflects, in a sense, the strengths and biases of the full-time undergraduate degree at, at Bristol. So we make sure that students cover something of the full chronological range of literature in English from the medieval period to the present day. And in that sense, students who come into the evening part-time degree have a sense they're getting the same thing as the full-time students. 
But as part of the programme, students also undertake four compulsory community engagement units in years one to four, which involve them in setting up some kind of project in year two and working with it through to a conclusion or seeking forms for it to be sustainable in year four. And they can then come back and do a research project on that sort of work in the final year in, in lieu of a conventional dissertation. The projects that students undertake are deliberately um, diverse. The common currency is often a reading group, although this has a different resonance depending on the setting. And the bottom picture on the slide behind me is of one of those reading groups um, at a, a local community centre that works with people um, uh, in drug rehabilitation. And we've also had reading groups in conventional settings like libraries, in pubs, cafes, homeless shelters, hospices and many other places. But students also subvert that format um, and do a whole range of other kinds of things with the project, um, uh, often partly just because what they're doing evolves out of their interaction with the community that they're working with. I want to focus here particularly on the journey of, of one student who I'm going to call Jill, um, who is now in her final year of the degree. Jill came to us via a taster module that we ran with uh, the local black development agency and when she did that taster module she was 40 and she was a lifelong resident of Bristol and then living in St Paul's which for any of you who know the geography of Bristol is extremely close to um, our university campus. In the third class of that taster course Jill confessed to the tutor that she couldn't find the course in the prospectus that she'd been reading and pulled out of her bag a prospectus for the University of West of England, UE, which is the other university in Bristol. And it took a while for her and the tutor to disentangle that whenever Jill had heard people talking about the University of Bristol, she had assumed they meant UE. Um, now, there are lots of implications to that story. I mean, partly I'm, I'm very interested generally in the, the idea of sort of invisible universities, actually, how a university could sort of go missing to its local community. The other issue is that Jill had spent her life managing her own dyslexia, which had destroyed her earlier educational opportunities. So I think she'd always had a sense that she called things by different names than other people. That was actually very resonant for her. Um, and I think there are, there are particular issues in that story about the way in which um, universities such as my own relate to local communities, including ethnic minority communities. Um, so Jill has continued on to degree, is, is due to graduate this year, and as her community engagement project, she continued an ongoing relationship she had with a, a local community organisation, which is a black uh, women's theatre project in Bristol. Now, all of this has led Jill, in her final year research project, to start asking some important and challenging questions. Why, in spite of the work we've done on this degree around black and ethnic minority participation, do retention rates remain lower for students from those backgrounds? Why, as she put it, if the degree programme is engaged with the community, does it involve reading literature that is so detached from the lives of so many of those communities? And in particular for her, why does it engage so little with the oral tradition? And I find myself, at, in response to Jill's questions, torn between, in a sense, looking back to that moment at which we created this degree at great speed and wishing we'd had more time and in a sense could have been more radical um, with some of the curriculum and feeling pleased in a way that the community engagement element of the degree has provided this space in which a student can articulate those fractured relationships 
and speak back to the institution about its biases and blind spots. And it, it sort of led me to start thinking about that degree in a slightly different way. The, when we, we started that degree, I spent the sort of first two years of it sort of internally regretting the community engagement element because it was so challenging for me um, and so uh, time-consuming, actually, just in terms of the tasks it involved, from the, the sort of basics of health and safety to the higher-end sort of thinking conceptually about how to link up uh, this sort of academic writing one could find on community engagement with academic writing on literary criticism and how to make those things speak to one another. Um, I now find myself thinking something completely different, which is I wish I could sort of abolish the degree and create a different degree in which community engagement would be the core spine of the curriculum and it would be the academic content that would kind of change and shift around that so that students could have a sort of creative relationship to the academic content that was partly dictated by the, the kind of urgent questions and interests that they'd come with. And it, that seems to me also to do something interesting about the academic practitioner divide. In that sense, it's almost as though the community engagement bit, which is the kind of practice bit in our degree, would become the academic content. And then they'd go out and be a kind of practitioner with the, the academic bits, in a sense, with the, um, with the rest of it. Um, somewhere in Bristol, there is an, um, a senior administrator uh, kind of having a small stroke at the thought of me coming up with another um, <laughs> balmy idea that they might have to deal with. Um, the other course that um, I've been involved in setting up at Bristol um, is a foundation year in Arts and Humanities, um, which is a pre-degree year that feeds into all the undergraduate degree programmes in our Faculty of Arts. Um, now, there are lots of aspects of that that um, have been challenging and interesting and, and um, that I could talk about, but I want to focus in this context on one thing particularly, which is how we went about structuring the kind of skills aspect of, um, uh, of that course. And uh, skills is a sort of interesting word here too, because the, I'm involved in a project at Bristol looking at skills um, training for, for all undergraduates across the institution. And the first issue that we've got stuck on is the issue of names. Do we call this skills? What do we mean by skills? Will students come if it's called skills? Will they get what this is if it's skills? And so, again, I think getting quite interestingly fixated on, on, the, on the name as being quite crucial. It only slowly occurred to us, I think, that some of the driest areas that we were going to want to teach on the foundation year were connected to deeper questions that the students would be bringing to the classroom. Like the part-time degree, the foundation year attracts a very broad range of students. Um, so from kind of 18 to mid-70s, um, from a very broad range of social and um, ethnic and educational backgrounds. And the vast majority of them, over 90%, don't have A-levels. So most are returning to study after some kind of gap, and often with a quite sort of traumatic earlier history of, of their engagement with education. And so we don't assume any prior knowledge or skills when a student joins the course. So some of the basics we wanted to cover were how do you build a timetable, how do you take notes when you're in a, a seminar, what's the difference between a seminar and a lecture and is that always fixed or is that kind of fluid and so on. And so 
for the timetabling session, for example, we devised a class that was based around the question, how does education fit into a life? And we gave the students a series of fictional case studies, students on their course, and asked them to imagine they were the kind of personal tutor presented with these problems and how, how would they advise the student. And we deliberately sort of combined in that um, quite practical questions. So the student who's struggling with um, a particular caring responsibility and juggling that with their studies, with students who were facing almost slightly more existential kind of questions about why am I doing this actually and how do I justify the time I'm giving this. And in a sense, it, it became, I think, not just an exercise in naming that task in the classroom, but also an exercise in helping the student name the world and make sense of it in certain ways. Because part of the point was to think also about how an individual student's practical dilemma didn't just belong to them, actually. It also belonged to the world. So... For example, one of these fictional case studies that we gave them explored the dilemmas of a woman in her 30s who was enjoying the course, whose husband was supportive of it, but whose husband's family were um, sort of quite aggressively trying to undermine her engagement with the course and seeing this as a very selfish undertaking because it was taking this student away from her relatively young children. And the discussion of that really took off when we asked the students, whose problem is this? And they immediately rallied, rightly, of course, to, to the student's defence and said, this is the family's problem, it's not her problem, she has a right to engage in education. But slowly the question kind of evolved to start to talk about whether, in fact, in some sense, this is the university's problem, and or society's problem, in a sense. Why do you have a group of people who feel so alienated from university or have so little sense of what might be going on in it or that it's valuable to them? that it would seem so threatening that, that someone that they were related to was engaging in it. Another uh, of those seminars was um, about the question of, of speaking in class. Um, and again, this was a question where it was, it was actually a lot of fun to be able to tie some of the most kind of practical issues that a student might be facing to some much larger dilemmas. So we started by just asking the students, why, why would someone not speak in class? What, what are the kind of range of reasons for that? And beginning with the very kind of literal, someone's lost their voice. What, you know, what does that mean? Um, is that a physical thing, or could someone have in a, in a more sort of uh, philosophical sense of lost their voice? What does it mean to kind of find your voice? Um, we talked a, a bit about other kinds of physical disability or impairment that might impede someone's ability to contribute in class. We talked about shyness. And then we talked at the other extreme about the need to impart urgent information. You know, one reason someone might speak in class is to shout, fire, for example. But also that sometimes, you know, a student who hasn't, has been very reluctant to speak, sometimes the first time they speak is because they feel a very urgent sense of the discussion. Actually, they want to be able to say no, I think you're wrong about this, or no, I think Marx was wrong about everything, or you know, wh whatever that kind of urgent intervention <coughs> is. And this kind of unfolded in various interesting ways. I mean, partly <coughs> for some students, in a way that was quite helpful, I think it, it allowed them to think about their silence sometimes as a mode of participation. That sometimes, actually, if they were silent in the classroom, of course, they were attending 
much more than if they just kept speaking. You know, that reversing some of those polarities was very important. But also, of course, because we started to talk about the fact that some of the people not participating in the seminar were the people who aren't there, who's not in the seminar and therefore not able to contribute, and what do we miss out on as a consequence of them not being there. You know, anecdotally, students were able to talk about, you know, the challenges they'd faced in coming in to do the course, their peers of various kinds they knew who wouldn't be able to do that kind of course, or um, uh, who they knew had turned back, say, in, in the admissions process. Um, and we also, of course, talked about the ways in which um, a university space can kind of replicate the outside world and therefore produce certain kinds of biases in the discussion. To put all of this another way, when we talk about widening participation, I think we need to remember that education is always a question of participation and that as soon as we take our own or someone else's involvement for granted, then the whole thing becomes mechanical and something is lost even to the most dry of, of academic concerns. Um, Uh, Mrs. Cadwalder, who's so mean to Dorothea in Middlemarch, is also quite mean about um, Casabon, uh, Dorothea's husband. Um, and he is, in a sense, a, almost a kind of caricature of an academic. He's someone who's spent 30 years working on this, it turns out, completely fruitless bit of um, research searching for a key to all mythologies. And Mrs. Cadwalder says of him, somebody put a drop of Mr. Casabon's blood under a magnifying glass, and it was all semicolons and parentheses. Um, this brings me to a, a question that I, I think Alex was touching on about um, the, the kind of relationship between um, certain things that we think of as purely academic concerns and, and the relationship to the outside world. And that, that question of what employers want is obviously part of that dialogue as well. Uh, I think this is one of those questions where I always... I always find myself wanting to kind of take neither side in this debate. That actually, I, I have a lot of sympathy with some of my colleagues who get very angry about the, the language of what, everything being dominated by what employers want and feeling that everything has become very utilitarian in terms of even how a, um, a literature <laughs> degree might be structured. But at the same time, I, I always sort of tense up at the thought of as of universities kind of retreating into the, the cliched kind of ivory tower, that, that actually that never seems to me a kind of suitable defence in, in a way against um, any of the, the current bureaucratic or governmental discourse one might want to critique. And in a sense it seems to me that both sides of that debate are to do with the fact that there is a kind of separation or wound between universities and the outside world which none of the language that we're using at the moment can properly address. Paulo Freire writes that the oppressed are not people living outside society, but have always been inside, inside the structure which made them being for others. And he sees the solution as being to transform the structure so that they can become beings for themselves. And it's structures, in a sense, that interest me. Universities have never been outside society, uh, just as those who are excluded from them are not outside their influence. And so the question is not just how a larger number of people can participate in higher education, 
but how they can do so in ways that are meaningful to them and allow them to become beings for themselves and in which the structure itself can be constantly challenged and remade anew. And um, Alex already touched on the, on the notion of kind of utopian thinking. I mean, it, it feels to me as though, it, in a way, maybe those are utopian thoughts in the sense of their thoughts about how we can imagine a slightly better structure. But actually, th- th- they also seem to me deeply practical thoughts, actually, about how, that question of how you create a better structure. And that's the point to me at which this false division between academic and practitioner becomes so problematic. Because actually, if we're wanting to transform structures, we need, we need good thoughts, as it were, and we need the nuts and bolts. We need to know how to do this, how to kind of rebuild some of these things. Um, as further evidence of the collective unconscious that's linking Alex and me, I was also going to talk briefly about Hannah Arendt. Um, Hannah Arendt came to, to my mind because um, she seemed to me to have an interesting debate about her own kind of title. So Arendt always refused the term philosopher. She refused to say that she was a philosopher because she said that philosophers were interested in man, capital M, and she was interested in men. In uh, One has to ignore the gendered connotations of this um, for a moment. But the, that she was interested in kind of real people, as it were, and, and in what happened to them and the way in which society was structured. And it seemed to me, in a way, a, a way of signalling that she thought of herself as a practitioner, actually. She thought of the academic work she was doing as very practical, in some sense. It's not just about the abstract, it's about the particular and the way, the way in which things um, really happen in the world. And Arendt also wrote a, a wonderful essay called Thinking and Moral Considerations, in which she talked about kind of what thinking is. And... Uh, there are two bits of that that have really stayed with me. One of which is she's very good on the fact that thinking is not the same as intelligence and that it's possible to be highly intelligent and not be thinking in some sense, to be kind of carried along by all sorts of group or societal or governmental or whatever norms. Um, and that, that connects me very deeply to my sense of part of what universities are there to, to train students to do, to think, actually. And, and she talks about the dangers of that, of course, because thinking kind of undermines any fixed starting point um, or, or any ideology or any um, doctrine. But also for Arendt, thinking could be a form of action. And she gave a very concrete example of that, which is if you're someone who thinks and then refuses to join in, then your thinking becomes visible. Actually, it becomes part of your action in the world. And... I mean, in a sense, that brings me back to Dorothea, I think, not, not calling things by the same names um, as other people. Um, I just wanted to glance, before I finish, at... Um, uh, oh, that image hasn't come out quite right. Sorry about that. Um, uh, at an issue that, that I've been thinking a lot about um, in, in the last few years, which is just how these questions about widening participation linked to the kind of international agenda, to internationalization, as it's, it's called within my institution, for example. Um, because it does seem to me that enormous numbers of individuals and institutions risk becoming invisible as we talk about internationalization. And I just wanted to give one example of that. Um, in 2013, I spent a semester teaching at Al-Quds University, um, Al-Quds is the Arabic name for Jerusalem and um, 
the institution of Al-Quds maintains a small campus in Jerusalem, but its main campus is in the West Bank. And so it's divided from the city of Jerusalem by the wall. And the image I was going to show you was of Jerusalem seen from the campus. But this is on the campus, and you can see the wall in the background, and it's kind of visible wherever you are. Now, um, there are lots of kind of complexities to this story, not all of which I can glance at at the moment. But the particular one that interests me is this way in which Al-Quds as an institution becomes invisible. Because it has those two campuses, it can't register with the Israeli Council for Higher Education as an Israeli institution, as other Arab institutions in Israel would, and it can't register as a foreign institution as other West Bank universities would. But there's also the particular issue of the dispute over the kind of ownership of Jerusalem, and therefore it being called Al-Quds or Jerusalem University makes it extremely contentious. And so one of my colleagues at Al-Quds told me a story about setting up a an exchange program with an Italian university and when the two Italian, it's quite a small program, when the two Italian students were due to come to Al-Quds they went to the Israeli embassy in Italy and they were told there is no such university. This kind of institution with 12,000 people just became kind of invisible, bureaucratically invisible. Um, As I say there are all sorts of complexities to that story but I, I use it here partly just because it seems to me an extreme version of some of those kind of issues about kind of naming our work, but also naming um, our kind of world. To exist humanly is to name the world, to change it, prayer writes, and then adds, once named, the world in its turn reappears to the namer as a problem and requires of them a new naming. Human beings are not built in silence, but in word, in work, in action, reflection. The point for me is that to name our work is also to name our world. The denial of a name to a university, the making of that institution as invisible, writes on a larger scale the questions of participation that we also deal with when we imagine the individuals who are not present in our classrooms. Frere continues, but while to say the true word, which is work, which is praxis, is to transform the world, Saying that word is not the privilege of some few persons, but the right of everyone. Consequently, no one, no one can say a true word alone, nor can she say it for another in a prescriptive act which robs others of their words. Part of what's so difficult and wonderful, I think, about education and about widening participation is this constant need for change in light of what one encounters. No sooner have I made space for someone else to participate then I need to take account of their participation, of what it is they want to say. If we perpetuate a divide between academics and practitioners, insisting that these are separate roles to be undertaken by different people, we insist effectively that we are widening participation to academic programmes that will not in themselves change as a consequence. This is saltifying for the students from whom either obedience or conformity is thus demanded. But it also means that teaching and research are stymied because they cease to be genuine encounters, because there is no dialogue or dialogue of only a particular abstract kind. Um, I never did call things by the same names as other people, says Dorothea, sounding at that moment like almost every adult education student I've ever taught, I think. This issue of naming our work is fundamental, I think. It matters very deeply. But like Penny, I think, I'm perhaps making a plea against standardisation 
and in favour of the need for a variety of names for some kind of plurality. And certainly I'm torn between feeling that we need to recover old terms. I mean, it, it really strikes me that in all those job titles I've, I've got, I've never had the phrase adult education in my job title, and how, how, how that's disappeared off the, the map in a very interesting way. So I'm torn between that, that feeling of a need for recovery and feeling that in the title of a more recent novel, we need new names. Thank you.